Thank you for downloading The Jewish Story, a nationally recognized top Jewish podcast for 2019. All seasons of this podcast series are available for download when you visit elmod.pardes.org. Rav Mike Foyer is creating a Wondering Jewish History podcast. And if you want to learn more about this, including how to join his Patreon page, please visit elmod.pardes.org slash ravmike. <laughs> Take two. Okay, so I'm not going to, trust me, I'm not going to recapitulate the beginning of the class. Um, so the, aside from that sort of internal intellectual dynamic, and we'll speak about the role that custom that Minhag plays in it, there's also simply um, the sociology of the movement of peoples, the rise of Turkish or Ottoman Jewry. Ottoman is probably a, a better term than Turkish. Just in terms of um, numbers, I think we touched on it, but, but it's important to note that in fi- by 1550, both Constantinople and Salonika will have a Jewish population of more than 20,000. That's fantastic when you compare it to even the sort of um, what's happening in Poland Lithuania, which is the centers of European Jewry at this point in the 16th, 17th century, where the population is high, but it's extremely dispersed. The urbanization of European Jewry is really a product of modernity, not early modernity. That's for reasons that we'll discuss in the next class. But, but of course, urban culture is fundamentally different than rural culture, and that's going to have a deep impact on our story. Um, and it's been a rapid rise, as we noted, that Salonika had only a handful of Jews before the expulsion in 1492, but, but by, by 1520, it had 15,000, right? And Svat, by 1560, is going to have 5,000 Jews out of 10,000. What had been a sort of like a, an, basically an Arab town with a small Jewish population now becomes split by half. And what was the industry that we said that the Jews moved heavily into? What? Fabrics, cloth trade. Constantinople and Salonika had more than 20,000 Jews, which makes them incredible urban centers for that point in Jewish history, as opposed to European Jewry, which was highly dispersed throughout the uh, countryside, as it were, for reasons that we'll discuss later. And Svat, in particular, by what number did I write down? 1560, um, has 5,000 Jews out of a total population of 10,000, which was a rapid rise, even from the time of... Doña Gracia and her, her nephew, Yosef, Duke of Naxos, that we spoke about last week, who had this sort of project of reviving Tiberia as a textile-driven refuge, practical place for where the Jews of the exile could take shelter. Um, so that's one dynamic that's driving this all. You can never miss that. Why Sfat, by the way? First of all, it's safe. Hilltop, far away. It's economically thriving so much so that the walls of Sfat you guys have noticed that Svat was a walled city once upon a time. You probably, if you've ever gone to, you know, you, you can see the remnants of the walls, just like you can see the remnants of the walls of, of Tiveria. But it was, the walls around Svat were built, uh, what I, it's, it's not long after um, they were, the walls around the old city were built. Yeah, 1594. By Suleiman, who, the, the sultan who, who invested an enormous amount in the development of, uh, of this area. Um, so the Itzvat is also located around, along two major trade routes, Damascus-Akko, Akko still being a, a very important port at the time, and Damascus-Cairo, 
which ba basically is the same route, meaning you go down to Akko and then you keep going down the coast and, and around the Mediterranean to Cairo, which made it worthwhile. Interestingly enough, the first printing press in the Middle East will also emerge in Svat in 1577. It would be a, a Jew from Prague who has this notion, first of all, everyone's got this notion that it's time to go up to the Holy Land, as we'll speak about shortly. And in particular, he figures it's a good business opportunity, because by 1577, as we'll see, there's a core of scholars living in Svat who are actually printing their books in Salonika. Venice is really the center, but they have to go quite far away. And in the nature of, of transportation communication at the time, that was difficult and dangerous. Just imagine the tragedy of putting your manuscript in the hands of some messenger, it goes to the bottom of the sea, or it gets caught in a rainstorm. Remember, there's no, there's no plastic ceiling, meaning, the, 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 and, and of course, you didn't make a copy of it because it took your entire life to write the original, right? Um, so, so the idea of opening a press there, truth is it doesn't work out so well economically for him, but, um, but it is noteworthy. It is the first printing press in the Middle East. Um, just to give you a sense that, that Svat is economically bubbling. Because one of the questions always in history is, what? Bubbling, it's bubbling, it's fermenting. Right? Because one of the questions you will always have in history is, why does a city achieve the status it does at any given time? You know, why? And Svat goes from being basically a sleepy town in the corner of the Ottoman Empire to being a center of Jewish learning within less than a generation. And it's not enough to say that the exiles all just gathered there, because the truth is, the exiles gathered in Salonika, and they gathered in Constantinople. They, they'll go to Amsterdam, Antwerp. Go, I mean, now Amsterdam at this point. Antwerp, as we saw. So but why does Svat become? Well, one of the answers is quite obvious. What does Svat have that Constantinople, Antwerp, uh, Salonika, et cetera, don't have? It's in the land of Israel. It's in the land of Israel. And, and you, can, you can never leave out the magnetic power, remember, Judaism is ultimately an organic practice and not a conceptual system. It, there, are, there will be mystical systems of thought. There will be metaphysics in philosophy. There will be sort of halachic abstract works. But ultimately, Judaism is an organic lived tradition and an organic product finds its greatest growth in its native soil, right? That's an image I've given to you before, but I want to repeat it. Just picture this idea that the Torah is a genotype. It's like DNA. We've all seen an acorn. If you haven't, stop now. Go home, right? The, is the oak tree inside the acorn? I love to ask my kids this question. You'd be surprised. It's not obvious. It's not obvious, like maybe it is in there and, and it would make sense that you put it in the ground as a tiny little oak tree and it grows out. We know the oak tree's not in there. We don't have to answer that. It was rhetorical, right? But what is in there is the abstract potential. But, but if you plant that oak tree at the foot of the Rocky Mountains or you plant that oak tree at the banks of the Mississippi, it's not going to come up looking the same, even though the abstract potential is identical. Yeah, Dove? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
For sure. So okay, let's take this acorn, this acorn, which is, which is the genotype of, of Torah, and the Jewish people, by the way, are its phenotype, if you're familiar with the genetic, meaning they are the express embodiment of this abstract. You plant it in Bavel, it comes up with the Gemara. You plant it in, in Cairo or Fostat at the time, it comes up with the Rambam. Plant it in Spain, it'll come up with the philosophers. What happens if you plant it in the land of Israel? Can you close that door, please? Now, one answer is you just get a different geno a phenotype. It's just another version of the same process. But what if, just what if, the contention is it's not an acorn at all? Oh, if you plant it in its non-native soil, you'll get something. But what happens when you plant it in its native soil? See, because part of the problem that we're dealing with is that there is a discontinuity in our story when it comes to the expulsion from Spain. It'll be really, since the destruction of the Second Temple, the first significant discontinuity that the Jewish people as a whole is experiencing. Up until now, we got it. Because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. It's been a hard row. We talked last year about the sort of 300 years of misery of this slow Ashkenazi creep from the Rhineland into Poland. And we'll talk about the flow back and etc. But, but what happened in Spain is a break, or perceived as such, for many reasons, not the least of which is this converso experience that you can no longer say us here and them there. It becomes, as we've spoken about in many ways, in the constellations to the tribulations of Israel, and, and, and we spoke about you know, Ibn Vergas, and these, the people are struggling with a sense that something has changed. And that opens up a door for a discontinuous perspective on the future as well. What if redemption is imminent? I'll put it to you another way. When we get to modernity someday, some year, we'll speak about the fact that orthodoxy, which is a product of modernity, which I'll just state and we can defend later, right, holds up as its highest ideal the notion that our children should be exactly like us. It's a preservationist stance. For many reasons, in the face of modernity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The problem with that is that the Torah who's up is its highest ideal, the presence of God on earth. So you see the problem. Is that if I, as an Orthodox Jew, have never seen the presence of God on earth, and I have set myself a culture whose purpose is to make my children just like me, then at some point or another, you know what I'm doing? Working at cross-purposes with the Torah. And so redemption begins to be perceived as a discontinuity. The temple will fall from heaven, right? Except you'll get a bunch of people who do what? They break away from religion and decide to take reins into their own hands, which is also a discontinuity in Jewish history. So here in Svat, to bring it back to our story, I would argue, in many ways, are the first seeds of the type of thinking that allows for a break with the past as the necessary precursor to the future. Right? And, and that's why it's different. There's something happening in the land of Israel. We'll speak about it more when we talk about the Arizal and the mystic tradition. But the, but the Beit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, is a very important piece. You understand what I'm going to lay out for you today, which I might as well sort of make explicit and then speak out, is that there are essentially two ways of relating to authority that we're going to see in Svat. One is tradition as authority. Right? We do what we do now because 
this is what the past dictates of us, and therefore the future is largely conceived as an organic extension of the past. The problem with that is that if your past consists of exile, then how do you get to a redeemed future? The other is that experience is a legitimate source of authority. In which case, if my current experience tells me something which the past has not illuminated, that's okay. Why? Because it's a different motive. I hear the voice of God telling me it's time now. And those two powers, tradition as a source of authority and experience as a source of authority, have an uneasy relationship. A very uneasy relationship, and we will see it as we move forward. So who is, oh, the, the other thing, which is just an interesting dynamic, I was because I wanted to talk about the sociology and I just got drawn into the story already, is just, um, it, it's worth it to put a finger on Ladino culture. What's Ladino? I'm so glad that none of the Ashkenazim Nazim said, isn't it like Sephardi Yiddish? Right? I, I've gotten that answer before, and I, like, I, I wish I had like, a yardstick to beat people with. They say, no, it, so, so it's important to remember that, that, that there is a parallel to Yiddish in the sense that the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula spoke a Spanish which was very similar to the Christians and, in fact, were part of the formation of Spanish as a vernacular language. Of course, being a Latin Romance language, it has its roots in Latin and has elements from many other sort of uh, cultures. But what happens is that when the Jews are expelled, they carry with them every particular, first of all, the written version, which is that often Spanish written in Hebrew characters, as it was Judeo-Arabic, there is this sort of Judeo-Spanish, meaning it's phonetically Spanish, but it's written in Hebrew characters, right, which already you can see is not going to work so well since the pronunciation of different characters is not the same, so that will begin a transformation of the language. Furthermore, they're going to carry that language into their various places of exile, where the surrounding non-Jewish culture doesn't share it. Whereas before it was a bridge to other cultures, now it becomes a source of national ethnic solidarity and separation. Okay, that's cool. What, but, but what? They land in all these Jewish communities who don't speak it, but because of the sort of status that they hold in their own minds as the elite of, of the Jews, and honestly, because of their tremendous mastery of Jewish knowledge, as I mentioned to you, the exiles will largely erase the cultural diversity of the Jewish communities into which they land. And so the Ladino now, in a very interesting way, will begin to meld with local languages. It'll pick up elements of Greek. It'll pick up elements of Slavic languages, what, exactly like Yiddish does. You guys know about the, the great dividing line of Yiddish? There's sour cream on one side and, and uh, applesauce on the other. <laughs> right? That is the great dividing line of Yiddish. I don't know if there's a comparable geographic marker for Ladino, but you do see, okay, that's nice, linguistic diversity. But one of the hallmarks of early modernity is the beginning of the creation of ethnic solidarity, both conceptually, practically. You know what does it for languages? What causes the multiple dialects of German to become the modern spoken German of today, or ditto French. Because you know, you know, there were valleys in France where people spoke a version of French that people two valleys over didn't really understand. It's not just the school system, it's a later invent. Yes, the printing press. Written language doesn't work with dialect. 
because you want the broadest possible audience and you're only going to set one type. And in the same way, the Ladino culture will at one point allow for ethnic separation and a sense of real nation in exile because it's no longer a bridge to the non-Jewish culture around them. It's a, an internal discourse, but it will also cause a consolidation of the very diverse communities within which they live. Ladino, and I'm, I'm, putting it, I'm putting it out there now because many people are unaware, I mean, people are very aware of Yiddish, well, Ashkenazim are very aware of Yiddish culture, right? It will become a thriving culture, as we'll speak about. Ladino culture has an almost identical parallel track, both in its literature and the existence of newspapers. And there's less uh, of a secular culture that grows out of it for various reasons, which we may or may not get to. But um, I just wanted to sort of like put that finger on it. And of course, Salonika will remain this center of Ladino culture. And Salonika is actually where our story, properly speaking, begins. So one night, every good story starts at one night, right? Um, just checking. Like, w one night of Shavuot, actually on the first night, because remember in Salonika they had two nights of Shavuot, which apparently the Kabbalists stayed up both nights, right? Somewhere around the year 1533, so we're, we're still fairly early after the expulsion. A brotherhood of mystics gathered in the city of Salonika. And you know, since the dispersion or the, the, the revelation and dispersal of the Zohar, this idea of a brotherhood of mystics has captured the imagination of many Jews. Right? Because you have Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Zohar and the Hebraic Kedisha, the, the holy brotherhood. To this day, it will find its manifestation in the Kabbalists of Sfat, it will find its manifestation, certainly amongst the Hasidim. And, and even today, I can tell you, I have someone who actually had a privilege at a certain point in his life having such a brotherhood. It's a powerful tool. So they meet one night on Shavuot night, not just one night, on Shavuot night, in Salonika, around 1533. And like I said to you before, Salonika itself was undergoing an incredible growth of the time, the point where 60% of the city was Jewish, and they controlled the port, so it was closed on Shabbat. In fact, they say that Ben-Gurion, to jump forward 400 years or so, that Ben-Gurion, when he went to try to pursue his law degree in Istanbul, he went through Salonika, and that was where he first encountered the idea that Jews could live an economic life of a nation. Because he saw Jewish porters at the ports, he saw Jewish sailors, he saw Jewish merchants and Jewish lawyers, and whereas the, the, the life of Jews in Europe that he came from was, was, was highly specific in its economic strata. In Salonika, he discovered that, wow, Jews could just be like people. You could be just like everybody, right? So anyway, we've got 400 years to get to that part of the story. But um, at this point, amongst this Kabbalistic brotherhood that were gathered to say the tikkun, that the Zohar recommends for the night of Shavuot. Now, what does the word tikkun mean? It means a fixing, it means a repair, and it's going to be an important word. We'll dwell on it more next week when we get properly speaking to the Kabbalists, but I think it's worth it to just touch the very important implications of the word tikkun. Tikkun has, on one hand, a somewhat depressing notion, it, that if the world needs a tikkun, it means that it's broken. broken. So that's upsetting, unless, of course, you read the news and look around and you say, duh, meaning if the, wor if the world weren't broken, then I would find it depressing. If you tell me the world is broken, at least I understand why it looks so bad. 
Because that, and that leads one to the actually very empowering side of tikkun, which is that if, if there is such a thing as a tikkun, that means not only is the world broken, what else? You can fix it. And, and, and I don't want you to take that lightly. First of all, it runs in direct opposition to much of the Christian culture that these men had struggled with, the idea that the world is a fallen world, and it's only through the acceptance of a doctrinal salvation, right? Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior, and that's how. And you can't fix the world, but you can basically get your ticket out. Get your ticket out. Right? And, and, and this is, goes back to the roots. I don't want to go into the roots of the dispute between the early Christians and the rabbis, but it's a very important difference. Is that Everybody recognizes the world is broken. The question is, did God put us into the world to recognize that and opt out? It's a world-rejecting view. Or did God put us in the world to say, well, gosh, he must want us to fix it. And through fixing it, fixing ourselves. And through fixing ourselves, fixing it. It's a dynamic and it, therefore, it is a world-affirming view. Never forget that. It's one of the reasons, again, that, that Judaism is an organic tradition, that halakha, Jewish law, you could take the theology out of it, and a huge portion of it still becomes relevant because it's a behavioral system for how one puts their values and beliefs into action. And there's much to learn from that, even if you don't believe that its authority is based in the divine or its authority is based in sacred tradition. Gosh, Raise your hand if you have a value, right? Have you ever struggled with how to actualize that value in the world? Of course you have. Now you have a tradition at your fingertips that has considered over the course of 2,000 years, how do, you, how do you embody your values and actions in ways which will be effective in the world? In many ways, that is the halachic project. And so they gather together, however, to do the more mystic tikkun because there's an assumption that the world of action of mitzvot is a necessary but insufficient tool for fixing the world. That the real tool for fixing the world is human consciousness. They wouldn't have used that language per se. They would have talked about the soul. But, but you know, what will come out of this is that there's a fundamental difference between doing a mitzvah as a commandment. You know, I'm, on Friday night, I'm going to take a glass of wine I'm going to have the intent of fulfilling the commandment of sanctifying the Sabbath, and I'm going to say a blessing. I've done the mitzvah, yes? But the mystics will tell you, if I lack the knowledge that I'm actually repairing a break which was made on Erev Shabbat, the sixth day of creation, and if I have a notion of what name of God was damaged in that moment, and I can actually repair a little bit of that now so the world becomes much more filled with divine light. You understand there's different planes of action which is going to become very important because in many ways we're going to see people operating on multiple planes. And it all comes back Doug, to your question, is it any different that they happen to go back to this place in the land of Israel or not? This is a big question, by the way. It's a big question today between American and Israeli Jewry. You want to build a healthy Jewish society? Does it matter where you are? doesn't matter where you are. If people are familiar with the 19th century thinker Simon Dobno, who, who was the big advocate of national autonomy within what was then the Russian Empire, right? he said all you need is geographic concentration. You need a bunch of Jews in one place with civil liberties, and we can have a Jewish people. I mean, history proved that he wasn't going to have a chance. To, well, he wasn't going to have a chance to demonstrate. One could argue it proved him wrong. 
But the only thing it for sure proves is that Eastern European Jewry got wiped out before they really had a chance to try. So here, on this night, in 1533, they gather together to do this tikkun. On Shavuot, it's a certain prayers and, and, and segments of Torah, we need to talk about it is. Um, by the way, present, in addition to Rabbi Yosef Karo, was Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz. What's the Alkabetz famous for? Right, the, the, the uh, liturgical poem, L'chad Dodi. Right? Meaning, we're starting to get into the personalities that directly affect our minhag, our practice, and not just the, the halachic underpinnings. It's like, just as a note, before these Kabbalists and Sfat, there was no Kabbalat Shabbat. If you look into the Shulchan Aruch, particularly into the Ashkenazi minhag, no such thing. People, their concern was to say Baruch the, the call to prayer, before a certain time. And, and this series of poems and psalms and singing, etc., which is so central to so many Jews' experience of Shabbat today, is a custom that develops in Svat in the 16th century. Now, from one perspective in our discussion, if your source of, the, of authority is tradition, then how significant is that? Not at all, which is why all the lift box in my show will come late. Right? <laughs> the, uh, we, but, but if there's some aspect of experience which gives you a sense of authority, and not just authority, but authority on the personal level is me- meaning, well then, this is a tremendous opportunity for evoking meaning through experience, through song, through delving into, especially if you've ever looked very closely at L'Chad Dodi, which is it's just an incredible, incredible reworking of a messianic Jewish vision. So here's the Alkabets and Rabbi Yosef Karo and another of a bunch of other Kabbalists whose names aren't going to be mentioned because I don't know who they were, sitting around, uh, could you imagine, Shavuot at night with those guys, right? Um, I, I, whatever, I promise they weren't schmoozing in the, uh, in the antechambers to the shul. Um, so it turns out that this night is a very special night for many people. Who is Rabbi Yosef Karo at this point? Rabbi Yosef Karo was actually born in 1488 in Spain. And his parents flee with his four-year-old, with their four-year-old child. They flee. Some say they went through Lisbon. Others say they went directly to the Ottoman Empire. It's a little unclear exactly what their track was. But they, they eventually find refuge in the Ottoman Empire. And by 1520, after much wandering, when, the, when he's now Rabbi Yosef Karo, he settles in, in Adrianople, which is another one of these cities in the Ottoman Empire that had received many Jews. Um, already in 1522, he had begun what he assumed at, his, at the time was going to be his life work. Right? His name is... Oh, there are no markers here? Wow. I wish my backpack. It's upstairs. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, what, yeah, that would be great. I mean, I think Maureen's got it. Thank you. Um, sorry I didn't bring my backpack. Or I have markers. Um, so his name is Rabbi Yosef Karo. His first great work will be called the Beit Yosef, the House of Yosef, which is, you know, has so many uh, sort of like biblical and uh, personal con- you know, connotations to it. It's hard to, to unfold. But, but he begins that work in, in 1522, approximately, um, and it's not, it takes him 20 years to finish it. Yeah, it's a major project. Thank you so much. Well, I'm sure one of them does. So his name, just because I've learned that it's helpful, right, is Rabbi Yosef Karo. His, his first major work is the Beit Yosef. 
right? House of Joseph. What is it? Don't forget, he's there on throughout night. We haven't, lo we haven't lost track of our story yet. The House of Joseph is a, is a, you could call it a commentary on the tour. Now, what's the tour, you may ask, right? So again, we've got in the generations of oral law, the first primary work is the Mishnah. Then we're going to have the Gemara. Right, there will be, we'll just call them the, uh, we'll call the, well, the Gaonim, well, literary fine, if you want to go, the Gaonim. Now, remember, the Gaonim, they don't write a major work. They're the era of responsa. And then we're going to have the Rishonim, the early medieval authorities, which is going to be the area of um, commentaries, we'll call it. Right, because, as I pointed out to you, what was the actual source of authority, the central source of authority at this point? Right, and you'll notice, they of course also write responsa. I mean, the, the Rashba, for instance, is actually the most prolific author in Jewish history as far as we have saved his works, right? Um, but you'll notice, the Mishnah and the Gemara are works which get treated on their own. Although, of course, the Gemara is referential to the Mishnah. The Gaonim are writing responsa because they are the live authority. Now, they're using the Gemara as a source of knowledge and wisdom, etc., but they, the buck stops with them. Once that central authority disappears, all of previous knowledge becomes a source of authority, but the posture includes, in, in addition to the continuing writing responsa, commentaries, because the Gemara is the focus. This is the Jewish culture that most of us are familiar with, right? At a certain point, and we're going to speak about it later in this class, we are going to get to the ach we'll just go with the blue, um, the achronim, the later. If these are the earlier authorities, achronim simply means, or first, you know, literally first. But rishonim also can mean earlier in that context. Right? This is the later. I say later because achronim could also mean last, but clearly they're not. Um, achronim. Now, we'll talk about what the achronim are doing. But, but we're going to now sort of blow this out over here. A, a turning point, well, let's just call it by its proper name, the Arbitur, a turning point, but we spoke about it either at the beginning of this year or end of last, I don't remember when, um, a turning point in halachic literature is the Arbiturum. It's written by Rav Yaakov ben Asher in Spain in the 15th, sorry, late 14th century late 14th century, I think it's like 1390-something. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. You can, somebody can Google it, but I'm pretty sure it's, uh, 1394 is coming up for me. But, um, but, but why does it matter for us? Because he is the first one. It's called the Arbiturium, the four rows, like on the, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol. And he is the first one who breaks the entire halakhic literature into four practical categories. Now, what they are, I don't want to get into the distinctions and the divisions. It's not important. But the key is for practical categories means that he leaves out everything which is not part of the present-day lived tradition. The laws of sacrifices, the laws of um, ritual purity surrounding the temple, most of the agricultural laws pertaining to the land of Israel are simply not addressed. Why? Right, this is a pragmatic work. He was the first, by the way, to encounter both the Torah of the Ashkenazi world 
in the Sephardi world for reasons that we're just not, I don't, can't go all the way backwards, right? But, but it, it, so he combines the opinions of basically all of the Rishonim from both sides of the divide, as they say. But it's, it's pragmatic and leaves out all of what will now become thought of as the messianic halacha. Like when the Mashiach comes and we rebuild the temple, then we're going to have to understand the sacrifices and the laws of ritual purity and the laws of, of uh, the agricultural laws of the land. But here in exile, I want to know, Rabbi, if I stick this spoon in that pot, can I eat dinner? Right? So, so this is a very important shift in the Jewish relationship to Torah as a whole. So the Beit Yosef is a commentary on the Arbiturim. It's a thin line. Response is, a, is an answer to a direct question. A commentary is a linear analysis of the Gemara, which will also answer many questions. So it's a, it, there is a distinction. It's a, I would call it more of a stylistic distinction. The response or the focus is on the practical question I'm being asked, where I'm going to bring probably lots of commentaries on the Gemara. Whereas a commentary, I'm trying to go through the Gemara systematically and lay out for you what the halacha looks like, in my opinion. So it's, I had a question. Who wrote? Somebody asked who wrote the Arbitorium? Rav Yaakov ben Asher. And I don't know if anybody checked it, but I'm pretty sure. I was, when was it? Thir but it is the 14th century. What? You, oh, he died by 1340, so it's a little late. So he dies 1340. So he dies in 1340. And we had a question where the Rambam lies in here, which, again, we can't go all the way backwards, but the Rambam lies depending on who you ask, he belongs either here or here. But the Rambam, just to give you a date, right? Oh, you can always remember, the Rambam lives for a half hour, 1135 to 12.04. <laughs> Fantastic what he accomplished, right? Um, the, okay. Can you guys tell when I have these canned lines? They're very useful. Um, the, okay, so another question, Del. He lived in Spain, mostly in Toledo. Excellent question. The, what prompted him on the most practical level is that he and his father had fled France when the expulsion from France, and they encountered, they carried with them the entire tradition of what's known as the Tosfists, the kind of like height of intellectual tradition of Ashkenazi Jewry. His father was the Rosh, if people are familiar, Rabbein Asher. Um, and they encountered the Rashba and the height of Spanish Jewry there. And so on one level, it was an intellectual wow. Like, we've got to put these together. On another level, we know that Spain was undergoing a process of, of legal consolidation and codification at the time. And so there was sort of in the air this notion that what law is is not this messy, parallel, lived tradition where you go to your local rabbi and you ask what you do. What law is is a book that tells you what to do. We're going to see that energy returning today. You understand? What, what is law? Is law an abstract system? to which we attempt in our futile efforts to live by? Or is law an organic process which is always kind of stumbling forward in the future? This has deep implications. Today, if people want to know what the halakha is, 
Do they go to their local community rabbi or do they go to the sort of Rosh Yeshiva high intellect today? Well, it depends, but, and, and that's, it's shifting. But, but since World War II, the position world over has been held by Russia Yeshiva. Whereas pre-World War II in Europe, you know where it was held by? Community rabbis. You see the difference? And that's why it's an excellent question, Dove, is that, is that a community rabbi, provided that they're learned enough, has a complex, nuanced, almost inevitably compromising-oriented approach. Why? Because he lives in the reality. Not only does he know it, he lives in it, right? Whereas a Rosh Hashiva tends to live more, gets, these are generalizations, you don't have to agree, it's certainly not true of everyone on everyone, but, 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 but the Rosh Hashiva tends to live surrounded by his students who, who are removed from the daily concerns, even many of them, of making a living and family, et cetera, and it just produces a different perspective. Now, you can make an argument that the Rosh Hashiva knows what the Torah really is, and that the community rabbis are just mired in compromise. That's the, philo that's the philosophical perspective. Or you could say, actually, the truth is, that Rosh Hashiva doesn't know what Torah actually is. You know why? Because what Torah actually is is the way people live it in their communities. And so that's part of why the, 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 the sort of the, the, the tour was subject to a larger cultural trend toward codification of law. And we're going to see that trend returning in our story today. But we're still in 1533. Well, actually, so Beit Yosef is not just a commentary on the tour. It is a massive unearthing of all of the sort of assumptions. So the tour is a very terse work. He's saying, this is the way it is, the way it is. I looked at this opinion, I looked at that opinion, this is the way it is. I looked at this opinion, that opinion. But Beit Yosef goes back, if you've ever studied it, like you can have a piece of tour this big, and then pages of Beit Yosef on it, because he's unearthing what were the opinions from the Gemara, what were the opinions from the early medieval authorities, right? So that's beautiful. Why is he doing it, though? It's not just to become famous, because I don't think that was his goal, though, though he does. But he says, actually, in his introduction, a few reasons. Number one, he says that two events in recent history have endangered the stability of halakha. Halakha is a lived practice. One is the expulsion, right? Because we used to have this organic lived custom where the average Jew didn't have to even ask the local rabbi what to do. The average Jew did what they did because that's what their mother and father did. That's been disrupted in his experience. Remember, he's thinking about his world, not Ashkenazim, who've had this experience repeatedly. The other one is the printing press. Because, you know, we all understand why the... Um, why the uh, expulsion would be disruptive. As he said, that it used to be in Spain and Portugal, questions were decided by local rabbis according to the customs of the country. But now all the exiles not only lost that continuity, but they landed in Cairo, Istanbul, in Salonika, and they meet other Jews. Now these other Jews have an established custom, which is different than that of the exiles. So who trumps? Right? And, and we're going to see that, by and large, that um, the Beit Yosef, even though he believes very deeply in the power of geographic definition of custom, we'll get to that more when we get to the Shulchan Aruch, nevertheless, in the end of the day, he also believes that there's a right and wrong in halacha, and he is the inheritor of the right tradition. Right? And, and, and so, therefore, 
he represents this almost cultural juggernaut. Just think about it. Why do we call Jews from Morocco, Yemen, and Istanbul Sephardi? Right? They're not, they're not from Spain, right? And, and part of it is just simply the Ashkenazi tendency to lump anyone that doesn't look like them into one category. No, I saw that look on a couple of people's faces, and it's true. But, but, but aside from that, which is a very real problem, right, one of the answers is because there was this incredible cultural takeover which happened in the wake of the expulsion. But the, but the printing press has created a situation, as he says, where many half-educated people in possession of legal books will feel justified following any written authority that they like. Because as we all know, the depth and complexity of the halakhic discourse is such that you could justify almost anything. And when, while that's important in terms of an honest embrace of a complex world, we all know, you know there's a difference between someone who already knows what they are after and goes looking for it, and someone who wants to actually know what the halakha is in any given situation and learns hard to figure out what it is. You produce, you might actually get the same answer. You know what differs at the end? The person who gets it. Right? And, and that's very, you understand what I'm saying? Is that it, the, I'll give an example. Today, there's all kinds of questions around gender and sexuality in halakha. Right? Whether it's about questions of, of power and authority and citizenship, who gets to do what? Whether it's questions of um, sort of right and wrong in sort of interpersonal intimate relationships and sexuality, right? And there are many people, so there's a whole world that either doesn't care about the halakha or there's a whole world that doesn't care about those people. Fine, we're gonna leave those ends out. In the middle, there is what I believe to be a significant number of Jews who care about both. So the question is, how do you come up with an honest halakhic addressing of the needs of um, you know, a, a woman who wants to lead services for the community or uh, a gay man who wants to have a life bond with another man? How do you get an honest halakhic answer? Now, I'll tell you how you don't get it, is deciding what you want already and seeking out the things within halakha that can justify it. Now, that being said, you might, going into it saying, I don't know what the halakha says, let me really research, you might come up with the same answer. The difference, and this is the point I made, what's different is that who you will be as a posek, who you will be as a halakhic decisor when you're done. Because the allegiance that the Beit Yosef represents, as mythical as it may be, is an important allegiance, which is an allegiance to the inherited process of law. Tradition as authority. Now, tradition as authority doesn't mean that nothing ever changes. That's one of the crazy things. No, it really doesn't. And, and, and one of the challenges of the pace of change, which be, hits its inflection point in the early, well, it doesn't hit its, go, starts to go up in early modernity and really hits its inflection point, let's say in the late 18th century, where things start to just change extremely rapidly, is that the organic processes of adjudication and what I would call evolution, which were unself-conscious. I mean, listen, a Jew in the 16th century doesn't look like a, a Jew in the 12th century, like a Jew in the 4th century. I just told you that this is a radical change in halakhic thinking. I'm going to lop off all the laws of the Corbinot, all the laws of, of you know, ritual purity, etc., and you don't have to think about that anymore. Now, you might think to yourself, what difference does it make? I don't, they're not practical, right? My answer to you is that you are a product of this decision. Because before that, Torah Shlema, it's one thing. 
the Rambam, everything. And in the, it's not just a technical issue that he talked about everything. The Rambam's opinion, if you don't have everything, you got nothing. Because how could you possibly understand the laws of making blessings over fruit if you don't know the laws of ritual purity in the temple? You know? Now, for the average Jew, the practical question of, I want to make a blessing over the grapes, Rabbi, I don't plan on offering a sacrifice today. So fine, so the Rambam tries to make it obvious. But for the people writing the books, for the rabbis making the decision, in his opinion, you cannot, you cannot break that wholeness. But we're all products of the post facto, what we know as the legal discourse, which is a pragmatic legal discourse. A lot of which just has to do also, practically speaking, knowledge expansion, right? How many Renaissance men or women do you know today? And what does it mean to be a Renaissance man? What does that phrase mean? They knew everything there was to know, right? Well, that's because there wasn't all that much. <laughs> right? A, a, today, you can't be. Right? A, a, and so, so this is a real challenge. Yeah, right. It's also uh, ideological. Uh, what do you mean? Also ideological in what sense? Yes. I would say it's subtly ideological. And where will that play itself out most powerfully? Education. Because I'd say it's subtly ideological. Because if you asked the tour, are we going back to the land of Israel? He would tell you what? Absolutely. Right? The temple be built now, etc. And remember, the learning is kept alive. It's not like the learning disappears. It's still out there today, and we have the Temple Institute making the vessels even now. But the educational impact on the average Jew out there is being told what you need to know in order to be a Jew is how to manage your kitchen, how to manage, manage the intimate size of your married life, and, and basically how to do business in a halakhically appropriate fashion. You understand the impact then? So you don't produce widespread sense of like, well, no, what I really need to know is, is how to make a sacrifice because like, it's actually going to happen. Or even more, how do I practically get back? And that, that will have big impacts going forward. Yeah, Doug. Yes, I think it's much more the latter. That it's a, that's why it's a, it's, a, it's a subtly ideological, a pragmatic approach that as an educator and as a leader, the people I'm dealing with need to know these things. But I'm just trying to point out to you, the impact practically, it was perhaps beyond what was considered at the time. And we're going to see it again in the Shulchan Aruch. So, so here he writes the Beit Yosef, which rockets him to sort of world fame in the Jewish legal sense, right? Um, and, and already in 1533, he is known as one of the leading legal minds of the Jewish people. And now just think about that. He's not even done with the Beit Yosef at this point. But because of the nature of communication and transportation, his name has already begun to spread. Now here he is with the Alkabets and their holy Chevraya um, on the night of Shavuot in 1533. And, and what happens? Well, I'd have to be able to turn over the paper again to tell you. Um, well, what happens is they hear a voice. Because something you have to understand is that we have a tendency to make a distinction between the rational 
and the mystic within our tradition. But the reality is that Beit Yosef, in addition to being the great legal mind of his generation, had an angel that sat on his shoulder and would often tell him moral lessons, would tell him about tidbits of the future, and according to some opinions, even helped him decide sort of thorny halachic questions. This angel was known as the Magid. One of the books that was published after Rav Yosef Karo died is called Magid Mesharim. It's a spiritual journal. There is some controversy in the scholarly world about how much of it was actually written by him, but in the traditional world, it is accepted as his work, um, and even in the scholarly world, the bulk of it is seen to be as a product of Rav Yosef Karo's experience. And the Magid was the physical embodiment of the Mishnah, in the feminine, by the way, um, which is a uh, Rav Moshe Idel, not Rav, sorry, Professor Moshe Idel has a, has a fantastic essay on it, but I'm looking for the great quote here. Uh, here it is. A muggy becomes a storyteller, moral instructor amongst the Hasidim. Um, the, but uh, in, in this case, it's an angel that is telling him what comes. Right? A, and it says in, his, in, his, in the introduction to the Magi Mesharim, Indeed, I am the Mishnah speaking from your mouth. I am the mother that admonishes her sons. I'm embracing you, and you should adhere to me always, so that my splendor will be upon you, and your splendor upon me. And furthermore, in one of the letters of approbation that comes before the work, right, it says that the, that the, um, the Lord was with Yosef, and he was a prosperous man, reading and studying the six orders of the Mishnah, so that the Spirit of the Lord moved within him, and he heard the voice speaking through the means of the Mishnah itself. Right? But thou, blessed Lord, hast helped me and comforted me by the melody of your voice with which you recite and study the Mishnah. Right? That there was an ecstatic element from an early age to his engagement with Torah. And I want you to remember that those of us who spent last year together, spoke about these sort of two schools of thought within Jewish mysticism, what we call theosophy, right? a philosophical, metaphysical approach, systems of thought, and the ecstatic or rather prophetic tradition, which is about hearing voices that are speaking directly to you the will of God. You'll notice, if you have a, a metaphysical system which you've inherited from your teachers, that's tradition as a source of authority. If you are listening to an angel that sits on your shoulder, that's experience as a source of authority. You can think it's crazy all you will, but I'm telling you to this very day, this notion, yeah, it's an experience. It is an experience. I didn't say that it's, it's sort of real in any objective sense. If you want to psychoanalyze why people hear voices, which by the way is a widespread human experience, cross-cultural, the idea of hearing voices, and our Western rational culture has a tendency to pathologize it, not just dismiss, to pathologize it, whereas other cultures see it as a tremendous source of insight, either from ancestors or spirits or simply from one's own voice within. So like, we'd be very hesitant to quickly pathologize. Obviously, there are situations in which it's indicative of more serious conditions, but it is a widespread cultural phenomenon which indicates it's part of human experience, is my only point. 
part of human experience. Does it mean that there's actually an angel speaking to him? I can't weigh in on that. I mean, I could if I wanted to, but it's not going to make any difference. Meaning, all I can tell you is that he believed that the voice speaking to him was the embodiment of the Mishnah. So interesting you would say that. Because, you know, Jews get really edgy when you start talking about the spirit of the law. Why? It's not clear, but it's also the Christian battle, which was the Christians wanted to get rid of the letter and, and keep the spirit. Here, you have a man who's attempting to embody both. And it's a very important understanding, is that, is that there's a sense in Svat that without the tradition, without the law, you're off, you're lost. If you can't point backwards to how you got to where you are now, then where are you in any meaningful sense? But if your only way forward is by back and then to where I got, then you know what? You're never going to get anywhere. There's a point at which you have to be willing to say, okay, I understand how we got here, and now we're going that way. Right? And we're going to see where that comes from actually here in 1533, when the voice of the Magid is so strong that night, one second, that not only does Rabbi Yosef Karo hear it, but the Alkabets hears it too. And we know what it said, because the Alkabets actually writes a letter to the community of Salonika and tells them. He says, this is what the Mishnah said, Go up to the land of Israel, for not all times are opportune. There's no barrier to salvation, be it much or little. Let not your eyes have pity on your worldly goods, for you eat of the goodness of the higher land. If you will but hearken of the goodness of the land you shall eat, make haste, therefore, to go up to the land, for I sustain you here and shall sustain you there. Awake, O drunken ones, for the day comes when a man must cast away his gods of silver, worldly desires his gods of gold, lust for wealth. Go up to the land of Israel, which you, should be, you will be able to do were you not trapped in the mud of worldly desires and vanities. Now remember, he's in what is at that time a growingly wealthy and powerful Jewish community of Salonika. And I said he wrote it in a letter, because why? Because the Alkabats, as soon as he heard this, left town for Svat. And Rabbi Yosef Karo followed him only a year later. Yes, Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz. Correct. Yes, the significance is, here they are sitting as exiles, having found refuge in a wealthy, powerful, growing, holy, religious... Remember, they're all sitting around this collection of Kabbalists in, in shul on the night of, of, uh, of Shavuot in Salonika, reading the Zohar, and, and only a madman, frankly, would pick up and go to a dusty town in the hills of, of the northern land of Israel when they had everything, and there seems to be no reason, meaning it's not like... You can make an argument that, well, you know, here we are in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. Frankly, the economics are here better than most of the cities in America right now. Like, what's really stopping you, I say to my friends all the time, right? Um, right? But in their point, they were already exiles. They had finally found refuge. He, Rabbi Yosef Karo was, was in the process of setting the halachic system, he deemed, on solid foundations. Meaning, look, well, what were they lacking? 
I'll tell you exactly what they were lacking. The spirit. Right? And you can say it was some sort of deep, subconscious, psychological urge speaking through him, or you can say it was the voice of God. But either way, they actually went. Why didn't they go to Jerusalem originally? Oh, why not Jerusalem? <laughs> that story lies ahead. Um, practically speaking, because Jerusalem was, was, was a serious backwater at the time, even though there was a Jewish community there, as we'll, as we'll speak about, practically speaking, life was much harder. Sfat was a thriving, I told you, that's why we started there. We can't leave out the, even though the alphabet is, is poo-pooing the economics here, it's all well and good, but everybody's got to eat, even rabbis, right? And probably them more than most, right? Um, Right? Cholera typo. Yeah, it was a, the, 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 yes, Tzfat, I mean, Tzfat actually, it, because it's a high mountain town and because the, the amount of rainfall and, and, and the, the investment that the Turks had made into securing it as a city, was a, it was like a desirable destination on the pragmatic level. Um, but there was also, as we'll speak about next week, there had already been a slow migration of Kabbalists into Tzfat. Why? So they'll tell you later that Tzfat is one of the four holy cities of, of, of Israel. But that's a late notion. It's a, a notion which really has its roots in this time. Right? And, and why is it a, one of the four holy cities of J- Jerusalem? Because all these Kabbalists, I'm sorry, of, of Israel, because all these Kabbalists went there. It's a, I mean, again, we, we're going to speak about that next week. I don't want to, but I do want to actually get a, a, the, the last sort of major, well, one of the last major events. R- Rabbi Yosef Karo followed him, and there was already a, already a community there. We'll speak more about the community as a whole a little bit today and more next week. That's where we're going. We're going to Sfat. Why? He heard the angel in Salonika. What? Oh, Magida, I don't know. I don't know. But, but, but if you look into the language of it, this is the beginning, not the beginnings, it's really the height of this embodiment of the Shekhinah, the divine presence as feminine. I mean, Mishnah being also a, a feminine word in that sense. Um, but, so when Rabbi Yosef Karo gets the spot, it's, it's hardly a halachic wasteland. Wh- who's waiting for him there, if you happen to know, is um, Rav Beirav, Rav Yaakov Beirav. Rav Yaakov Beirav was amongst the exiles again. He was born near Toledo in 18, sorry, in 18. Uh, 1474, which means he's, you know, a good, uh, what's that, 14 years older than the Beit Yosef. It means also that he was at age 18 during the exile, which is, you know, an age of of full consciousness. He was a student of... um, of the, uh, the Abuav, who was, uh, no, the, he was known as the last Gaon of Castile. What, why is that important to us? Because he, he is an inheritor of the Spanish legal Talmudic tradition. Right? He makes his way fairly quickly. I mean, his track is, is a little bit less known. He goes to Fez, that's in northern Africa, right? Um, to the Barbary states, moving, that's west, no, that's eastward. Um, to the Barbary States, um, he, where the community insists on making him his rabbi, even though he's only 18. But by 1522, he'd made his way to Jerusalem, because that was the natural destination. But life was so hard there that he actually went down with his students to Egypt. Because it was a major... Yeah, well, the Rambam did the same thing. 
um, because Egypt was a major Jewish community, had been for hundreds of years. But in the end, the call of the land was too strong. And sometime after, around 1533, and right before Rav Yosef Karo, that Rav Beirav actually moves to Sfat, which is apparently one of the reasons that Sfat held an attraction for him, because Rav Beirav was, at that point, truly one of the great legal authorities in Ottoman Jewry. And he matters for our story because Rav Beirav is going to conceive a revolutionary idea that will make him famous, the source of tremendous controversy, and will actually um, address our sort of long, long, uh, longer narrative of how this experience of the exiles shapes the Jewish world to this very day, which is that Rav Beirav sees the converso problem in a particularly halachic light. Many, at this point, as we've spoken many times, many of the conversos have escaped or are in the process of escaping, and, and they are reverting or returning, as you want to, whatever language you use, to their Jewish practice. What's the problem? Many of them are haunted by the fact that they had lived as professing Christians, which, in their opinion, was an act of idolatry, which is an act halakhically punishable by karate. Karate is spiritual excision. It's, it's the big punishment. And they're stuck. Imagine. Again, so don't indulge in historical anachronism. Most of us come from enough of a rational culture that we just assume, like, come on, they didn't really mean it. It's not so bad. These are people who live still in a God-saturated world, where because of tremendous suffering and fear, they'd been forced to become something other than they were, betraying in their eyes the most sacred. Because remember, idolatry is, in the rabbinic opinion, one of the three acts for which one is yareg v'al yavor, that you should die rather than transgressing. Here they are, they've gained their freedom, they want to go back to being Jewish, and they're haunted by the fact that they actually worshipped idols. What are they going to do? What's the tikkun? Remember I told you, this is the driving force that underlies the way that the mystic culture affects lived experience. So Rav Beirav has an answer. Because the Mishnah in Makot says, Anyone who is, um, has, uh, is uh, was guilty, that's the word, guilty of a transgression of karet, if they're given lashes by a duly ordained court, they are relieved of that punishment of karet. So great, all we got to do is give them lashes, right? No. There has to be lashes administered by a duly ordained court. So Rav Beirav says, I've got the solution. We need to reawaken the institution of ordination, of smicha. Now, smicha, which literally means a laying on of hands, right, is an institution which, according to Jewish tradition, exists from Moshe to Yehoshua, a physical laying of hands, all the way down to the point where it's broken, likely around, the, let's call it the, uh, the 5th century. Could have been a little bit earlier, could have been a little bit later. But it has been gone from the world of the Jews at this point for almost a thousand years. So how, now we're talking about literally physical handoff. So game over, right? At the same time, if you look into much of rabbinic literature, that the Messiah is bound up with a court 
called the Sanhedrin, which is duly ordained to adjudicate Jewish law at the highest level. By the way, you may not know it, but those of us who are striving to live by Jewish law are living in a very broken system. It's not just a broken world, it's a broken system. Imagine a legal system where when a real question came up, you know what everyone said? Well, we can't deal with that. We can't deal with that, sorry. We're not, we're not um, empowered, ordained to deal with that. But wait, I still have to live by a decision that was made in the fifth century about the status of women within law? Yeah, why? Because we can't deal with that. You sense the problem, right? Um, and so Rav Beirav was driven by the compassion that he had for the conversos who wanted to free themselves of a deep guilt, as well as his sense that he was living in a time of imminent redemption. Why? Because if you look in the Rambam, if you look in the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, Rambam will actually tell you a fantastic thing. That he says that if there were agreement amongst all the students and sages in the land of Israel to appoint one person as their head, right? And that person, therefore, will be considered duly ordained. I'm paraphrasing. And he says it must be so. Why? Because if you don't say so, then there will never be the possibility for the establishment of the Sanhedrin, the high court. And he quotes, meaning it's, it's, a, it's a messianic force play. I've got words in the prophets that say, Hashiva Shoftein and Kavri you're going to return our judges as of old, which means it's going to happen, right? And if you tell me you, technically it can't happen because we lost this for a thousand years, then I'll tell you you're, you're saying that the prophets are lying. So says the Rambam, there must be a way in which we can reawaken this institution. And the Rambam's answer is that if you get all the sages or the majority, it's a question of whether it's all or the majority, right, to appoint one person, they all say, he's really a rabbi. Then you know what he can do? He can appoint other people rabbis. And then the system gets going in. The Rambam doesn't just say in his commentary on the Mishnah, by the way, he also brings it in his Mishnah Torah, in his great legal work in the laws of Sanhedrin. And so Rav Beirav gathers his students together and they do deep work in the learning and decide the Rambam is correct. And so, without surprisingly much ceremony, right, in 1538, uh, an assembly of rabbis meets in Svat together with all their students and they ordain Rav Yaakov Beirav, the first true rabbi in more than a thousand years. He, in turn, turns around and ordains a group of his chief students, amongst them, of course, Rav Yosef Karo. And he sends a letter to the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Because, you know, as you guys pointed out, I mean, Sfat, Sfat, well, how, about, how about Jerusalem, right? The Maharal Bach, I mean, the Rav Levi Ibn Chaviv, I'll write it up. <laughs> right, Rav Levi Ibn, which means bar, son of Chaviv, is, is, the leader, is the leader of the, he's the rabbi of Jerusalem at the time. Um, he's also a major legal authority in his own day. Receives a letter one day, by personal messenger, of course, because there, there's no other way at this point in history. Um, Congratulations, you're a rabbi. We up here in Sfat have decided it is so. And they explain to him the process. So you can say he's less than thrilled to get such a notice. 
First of all, he doesn't agree with the Beirav's, Rav Beirav's um, analysis of the Rambam. Because the Rambam, actually, at the end, he's got a little bit of hesitation, which is that he says that this matter requires a final decision. So Rav Beirav said, okay, so we did that. We've made a final decision. Right? Second of all, he says, you up there in Sfat, you represent the heart and soul of the rabbis in Israel. What about Jerusalem? And so a huge controversy of, I mean, huge, called, you know, it's a kuntras, a smichus, right? The, the, there's a big argument back and forth between Rav Beirav and the Maharabach. Bottom line, by the time Rav Beirav dies, there's no universal acceptance of this process. So one might be tempted to say that it's a failure. But the reality is, and there's no, certainly he never constitutes a court to start giving people lashes in order to absolve them of the punishment of Kritot. Um, but, you know, one of the most important products of this process was the recognition of Rabbi Yosef Karo as a legitimate halakhic authority, legal authority, beyond the average. Meaning whether the technical capacity of ordination belonged to him or not, this was probably the most public way of elevating him head and shoulders above every other rabbi of his, t- of his time. In fact, people know what, the, what he's, he's got many nicknames. One is the Beit Yosef. What's another one? Maran. He's called Maran, which likely means like, like, like Morash Elanu, right? Our teacher, right? But it's held to be an acronym for, for Matayim Rabbanim Nismach that he was ordained by 200 rabbis. Public acclamation is a very powerful tool for authority. In in fact, in many ways, public acclamation is the only real source of authority. I could be an absolute genius and master of law, but if nobody asks me questions or nobody listens when I give answers, then I'm just some random guy who's got a lot of information, right? Right? So, So what happens is indeed the Beit Yosef, who had at this point just about finished his first work, goes on to become really the foundation of the future legal discourse. Now I have 10 minutes left and I want to clarify a very important point. There's a dividing line that we put here between the early medieval or the earlier authorities and the later authorities. It is, as we've spoken about many times in terms of periodization, this desire to break history up into neat chunks, it's, it's an abstraction. Nobody ever woke up in the morning and say, oh, that's it with the Rishonim, I'm an Achron now, right? But, but it's a very important distinction because as we've seen, there's a dynamic through time of codification, which looks backwards for authority, right? And, and you know, in the, in, in the Gemara, you don't argue with the Mishnah, right? I mean, you'll read it however you want, but you're not going to argue with it. At the same time, amongst the sages of the Gemara, we say what? Halacha kibatrai. The halacha is actually like the later authorities. So there are two dynamics you will always find within the halachic discourse, which is that on one hand, tradition lies, sorry, tradition is the source of authority, meaning the truth lies in the past. On the other hand, since all kinds of questions arise in the present, really, authority lies in the present. Why? Because how could anybody ever live without both elements. And as stuck as you think the Jews may be around some 
particular halakhic questions, you'd be surprised how bad it would be if we didn't have that other element. Right? The other way of saying this, as I pointed out to you before, people have raised it, this is this idea of yuridata dorot, right? the descent of generations, that the further you get from Sinai, the less authority you have. But the further you get from Sinai, the closer you get to, to the Messiah. And, and so therefore, you notice that this is the same dynamic. There's one level at which tradition is the source of authority. There's another level at which the movement toward redemption and therefore your present historical experience must be the source of authority. So therefore, if I'm going to ask you, at least amongst the character of our stories right now, who is the last of the Rishonim who represents this notion of tradition as authority? Who is it going to be? The Beit Yosef. He's the last of this process. But you know who the first of the Achronim is? Well, the Shulchan Aruch, who is the same person, if you don't know. Right? The, so, because Ben Yosef writes many books, the, the three major ones. One's a commentary on the Rambam that we don't really need to speak about right now. He writes at the end of his life. It's very important, called the Ketz of Mishnah. But the, the, the parallel work to the Beit Yosef is called the Shulchan Aruch, which means literally a set table. Right? The Shulchan Aruch, as opposed to the sort of broad explication of the Arbiturium, which was the Beit Yosef, Shulchan Aruch is much like the Arbiturium. I'm going to take what I deem to be the major three halachic authorities, and I will decide, says the Beit Yosef, what the law is. And if you've ever seen the Shulchan Aruch, it's very straightforward. Case law, case law, case law. Boom, 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 boom. And somewhat inflexible, therefore. Even though he will bring still the arguments, etc. It's not, it's not the Rambam who doesn't bring any argument at all. Right? It's important to remember that. But the Rambam removes all argument from the halachic discourse. Why? Because he feels that he had finished that whole discussion. The Beit Yosef doesn't go that far, but in writing the Shulchan Aruch, it's a set table. Why is it called a set table? Because all you got to do is sit down and eat. It's a rabbinic term. That, that, that according to the Midrash, that, that God told Moshe to put the law in front of the people like a set table. That it should just be clear and ready to eat. Notice the pragmatism implied in that. So it's in many ways the same challenge that the... Um, Tour is dealing with is that in order to be a Jew, you need to be able to just handle this sort of this information. Um, now here's the question for you. So he writes the Shulchan Aruch. The first edition of the Shulchan Aruch hits the printing press in 1564. It's there on your timeline. It hits the printing press in 1564, and as we'll speak about not next week but two weeks afterwards, there's a there's a, a response from Ashkenaz because he's of course only embodying the Svartic tradition of law, which he feels is correct. And we'll speak about the, the sort of dynamic of custom. I'm going to have to get to that. Um, maybe actually I'll pick up with it next week. We'll start there. That dynamic of custom, we'll finish this discussion next week, is very important. But, um, but before we finish, in the last couple of minutes, you know, today the Shulchan Aruch is the undisputed basis of all legal discourse. Right? You, you just can't get around it. And by the way, it's gone a long way since there. And since he wrote it you know, almost 500 years ago, 450, 460 years ago, there's massive development. And this is what happens. Right? He consolidates everything into one simple volume. And what happens from there? There's then the sort of like growth of commentaries and opinions because the world keeps moving forward and people are living parallel historical experiences. Right? And then at a certain point, there will always be need to sort of like bring it back together. By the way, you know what the most widespread attempt to take one part of the Shulchan Aruch 
and put it back together into one unified tradition, it's called? The Mishnah Brura. The Mishnah Brura, which literally means clear teaching. And he says in his introduction, the, and it was written in the beginning of the 20th century, so uh, almost 400 plus, 400 and, you know, whatever, do the math, 440 years or so later, right? Mishnah Brura says, well, once upon a time you had the Shulchan Aruch and we knew what to do, but since then there's been this explosion of the Ahronim. Everybody's commenting, trying to understand what does the Shulchan Aruch mean to me in Minsk, in, you know, uh, Krakow, in Lublin, or wherever I am. So that's a natural process. No, the Rambam is hundreds of years before. The Mishnah Brew is a 20th century product. Turn of the 20th century is Rav Yosef, sorry, Rav Kagan, new is Mayor, Mayor, Yisrael Mayor, thank you, was the other name. Yeah, Yisrael Mayor Kagan. But that story lies ahead. I was just pointing out that this dynamic of a consolidation into one work and then the sort of almost explosion of commentaries, which once again necessitates a consolidation, is a dynamic that you can trace in Jewish literature. It's a great question. How different is the content of, let's go with between Arbiturium and the Shulchan Aruch? So there's remarkable similarity. It's just that the Shulchan Aruch is making decisions in which he will disagree with the conclusions, that, meaning he goes back to the sources, he blows it out, so to speak, and then he'll pick, sometimes he'll just quote the Torah and that's it. But other times he'll disagree and say, no, the Torah was wrong, this is it. But structurally, they're very similar works. Where, and, and the Mishnah Brewer is a different discussion. I, I don't want to confuse, I can see I confuse people with that. Yeah? So he's the same person. Rabbi Yosekawa writes the Beit Yosef. He wrote the Shulchan Aruch. And that's why my somewhat joking... So he wrote the Beit Yosef. And my point... And another 20 or so to write the Shulchan Aruch. Again, so the, so the Beit Yosef is an expansion in an attempt to sort of like unpack, as it were, the very terse presentation of the Torah. And then the Shulchan Aruch is a contraction into, in fact, many people claim that the Shulchan Aruch was written only to be used as a study guide and not as a definitive legal work. And that brings us to where I want to end, which is that today you don't get more from than the Shulchan Aruch. It is the basis for all current legal discussion. Right? In its day, it was a source of tremendous controversy. And there were many voices. Uh, maybe when we talk about the story of Ashkenaz, I'll tell you who they are. But for now, I only have a few minutes left. I don't want to overwhelm you with names. But there were many voices who said, you, you can't do that. Right? That, that, that in the very nature of language, if you think about the, the grappling with the postmodern problem of language, the very nature of language is such that as soon as you write it down, it's unclear which is going to give birth to multiple interpretations. And so therefore, of necessity, all you've done is just add one more sort of stone to the pile of commentary. You can't make a definitive legal work. You understand? Because when I read it in Lublin, I will see different things in it than when you read it in Salonika. Right? So that's, that's, that's a major problem. Whereas as a Voice in the discourse, that's fine. As a codification, a definitive codification of law, impossible. 
Why? Because there's only one source that these voices, and there are many of them in its day, there's only one source that they will agree upon that the discourse is at the base of the discourse, and that's the Gemara. And even the Gemara, of course, gives birth to multiple commentaries. But, but their expectation is that the process matters more than the product. And that's a very important piece here that's going to be one of the hallmark challenges of early modernity, is that if you have a process orientation to law, you know what happens to the average Jew? They fall out. They get lost. Right? Whereas, if you, but the thing is, if you take the sort of intellectual elite, the adjudicators, and not just the Jews, and, and you remove the process orientation of law, you know what happens to them? Codification becomes calcification. Right? They get stuck. They, they actually can't respond in a genuine fashion any longer because they're bound to what was written before. Oh, you're going to tell me they were always bound to what was written before? Sort of. I mean, if you've read the Gemara, you see that it is an expansive document which lends itself to multifaceted interpretation. And most importantly, the process that makes you into the type of person who knows what needs to be done. It's not an answer book. By the way, the Torah is the same way. These are not answer books. They're training manuals. They're meant to make you into the type of person who knows how to answer the question. That doesn't mean they won't give you questions along the way, or answers for that matter, right? Of course, they're going to give you some answers. But the key is, and this is the fight against the Shulchan Aruch, which, are, which rages for quite some time, and in fact, there are even opinions down into modernity that refuse to accept it as binding authority. The Graw is probably the most significant latest one. right? They, 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 you cannot codify law in an absolute sense, or you will calcify the living tradition of Judaism, and it will break in the face of a changing world. Therefore, you must always have a process orientation to law whose, whose primary goal is to make you into the type of person through the process of learning who knows how to answer the difficult questions. So we will come back to the impact of the Shulchan Aruch and the larger mystic world of Sfat next week. We're going to have to stop there. Let's see if that actually recorded. Oh, look at that. It did. Thank you for downloading The Jewish Story by Rav Mike Foyer. All seasons of this podcast series are available for download at elmod.pardes.org. If you enjoyed what you just listened to, please give us a five-star review at iTunes or wherever you download your podcast today. We appreciate your feedback and look forward to having you listen to more by visiting elmod.pardes.org.